0: Chapter 12 Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain, and for more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen LeMoyne. GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 12 The Heralds left their pricking up and down. NOW RING IN TRUMPETS LOUD AND CLARION. THERE IS NO MORE TO SAY BUT EAST AND WEST. IN GO THE SPEARS, SADLY, IN THE REST. IN GOETH THE SHARP SPUR INTO THE SIDE. THERE SEE MEN WHO CAN JUST AND WHO CAN RIDE. THERE SHIVER SHAFTS UPON SHIELDS THICK. HE feeleth THROUGH THE HEART'S BONE THE PRICK. Up springen spears, twenty feet in height, Out go the swords to the silver bright, The helms they to hewn and shred, Out burst the blood with stern streams red. Chaucer Morning arose in unclouded splendor, And ere the sun was much above the horizon, The idlest, or the most eager of the spectators, Appeared on the common, moving to the lists as to a general centre, in order to secure a favourable situation for viewing the continuation of the expected games. The marshals and their attendants appeared next on the field, together with the heralds, for the purpose of receiving the names of the knights who intended to just, with the side which each chose to espouse. This was a necessary precaution in order to secure equality betwixt the two bodies who should be opposed to each other. According to due formality, the disinherited knight was to be considered as leader of the one body, while Brian de Bois-Gilbert, who had been rated as having done second best in the preceding day, was named first champion of the other band. Those who had concurred in the challenge adhered to his party, of course, excepting only Ralph de Vipon, whom his fall had rendered unfit so soon to put on his armor. There was no want of distinguished and noble candidates to fill up the ranks on either side. In fact, although the general tournament, in which all knights fought at once, was more dangerous than single encounters, They were nevertheless more frequented and practised by the chivalry of the age. Many knights who had not sufficient confidence in their own skill to defy a single adversary of high reputation, were nevertheless desirous of displaying their valour in the general combat, where they might meet others with whom they were more upon equality. On the present occasion about fifty knights were inscribed as desirous of combating upon each side when the marshals declared that no more could be admitted to the disappointment of several who were too late in preferring their claim to be included. About the hour of ten o'clock the whole plain was crowded with horsemen, horsewomen, and foot-passengers, hastening to the tournament, and shortly after a grand flourish of trumpets announced Prince John and his retinue attended by many of those knights who meant to take share in the game, as well as others who had no such intention. About the same time arrived Cedric the Saxon, with the Lady Rowena, unattended, however, by Athelstane. This Saxon lord had arrayed his tall and strong person in armour, in order to take his place among the combatants. And considerably to the surprise of Cedric, had chosen to enlist himself on the part of the knight-templar. The Saxon, indeed, had remonstrated strongly with his friend upon the injudicious choice he had made of his party. But he had only received that sort of answer usually given by those who are more obstinate in following their own course than strong in justifying it. His best, if not his only, reason for adhering to the party of Brian de bois Athelstane had the prudence to keep to himself. Though his apathy of disposition prevented his taking any means to recommend himself to the Lady Rowena, he was nevertheless by no means insensible to her charms, and considered his union with her as a matter already fixed beyond doubt by the assent of Cedric and her other friends. It had therefore been with smothered displeasure that the proud, though indolent, lord of Cunningsburg beheld the victor of the preceding day, select Rowena as the object of that honor which it became his privilege to confer. In order to punish him for a preference which seemed to interfere with his own suit, Athelstane, confident of his strength, and to whom his flatterers at least ascribed great skill in arms— had determined not only to deprive the disinherited knight of his powerful succour, but, if an opportunity should occur, to make him feel the weight of his battle-axe. De Bracy and other knights attached to Prince John, in obedience to a hint from him, had joined the party of the challengers, John being desirous to secure, if possible, the victory to that side. On the other hand, many other knights both English and Norman, natives and strangers, took part against the challengers, the more readily that the opposite band was to be led by so distinguished a champion as the disinherited knight had proved himself. As soon as Prince John observed that the destined queen of the day had arrived upon the field, assuming that air of courtesy which sat well upon him when he was pleased to exhibit it, he rode forward to meet her, doffed his bonnet, and alighting from his horse, assisted the Lady Rowena from her saddle, while his followers uncovered at the same time, and one of the most distinguished dismounted to hold her palfrey. "'It is thus,' said Prince John, "'that we set the dutiful example of loyalty to the Queen of love and beauty, and are ourselves her guide to the throne which she must this day occupy. Ladies!' He said, Attend your queen, as you wish in your turn to be distinguished by like honours. So saying, the prince marshalled Rowena to the seat of honour opposite his own, while the fairest and most distinguished ladies present crowded after her to obtain places as near as possible to their temporary sovereign. No sooner was Rowena seated than a burst of music, half drowned by the shouts of the multitude, greeted her new dignity. Meantime, the sun shone fierce and bright upon the polished arms of the knights of either side, who crowded the opposite extremities of the lists, and held eager conference together concerning the best mode of arranging their line of battle and supporting the conflict. The heralds then proclaimed silence until the laws of the tourney should be rehearsed. These were calculated in some degree to abate the dangers of the day. A precaution the more necessary as the conflict was to be maintained with sharp swords and pointed lances. The champions were therefore prohibited to thrust with the sword, and were confined to striking. A knight, it was announced, might use a mace or a battle-axe at pleasure. But the dagger was a prohibited weapon. A knight unhorsed might renew the fight on foot with any other on the opposite side in the same predicament, but mounted horsemen were in that case forbidden to assail him. When any knight could force his antagonist to the extremity of the lists, so as to touch the palisade with his person or arms, such opponent was obliged to yield himself vanquished, and his armor and horse were placed at the disposal of the conqueror. A knight thus overcome was not permitted to take further share in the combat. If any combatant was struck down, and unable to recover his feet, his squire or page might enter the lists and drag his master out of the press. But in that case the knight was adjudged vanquished, and his arms and horse declared forfeited. The combat was to cease as soon as Prince John should throw down his leading staff, or truncheon, "'another precaution usually taken to prevent the unnecessary effusion of blood "'by the too-long endurance of a sport so desperate. "'Any knight breaking the rules of the tournament, "'or otherwise transgressing the rules of honourable chivalry, "'was liable to be stripped of his arms, "'and having his shield reversed, "'to be placed in that posture astride upon the bars of the palisade, "'and exposed to public derision, "'in punishment of his unknightly conduct.' Having announced these precautions, the heralds concluded with an exhortation to each good knight to do his duty, and to merit favour from the queen of beauty and love. This proclamation having been made, the heralds withdrew to their stations. The knights, entering at either end of the lists in long procession, arranged themselves in a double file, precisely opposite to each other the leader of each party being in the centre of the foremost rank, a post which he did not occupy until each had carefully arranged the ranks of his party and stationed every one in his place. It was a goodly and at the same time an anxious sight to behold so many gallant champions, mounted bravely and armed richly, stand ready prepared for an encounter so formidable Seated on their war-saddles like so many pillars of iron, and awaiting the signal of encounter with the same ardor as their generous steeds, which, by neighing and pawing the ground, gave signal of their impatience. As yet the knights held their long lances upright, their bright points glancing to the sun, and the streamers with which they were decorated fluttering over the plumage of the helmets. Thus they remained while the marshals of the field surveyed their ranks with the utmost exactness, lest either party had more or fewer than the appointed number. The tale was found exactly complete. The marshals then withdrew from the lists, and William de Weevil, with a voice of thunder, pronounced the signal words. Laissez aller. the trumpet sounded as he spoke. The spears of the champions were at once lowered and placed in the rests. The spurs were dashed into the flanks of the horses. And the two foremost ranks of either party rushed upon each other in full gallop, and met in the middle of the lists with a shock, the sound of which was heard at a mile's distance. The rear rank of each party advanced at a slower pace to sustain the defeated and follow up the success of the victors of their party. The consequences of the encounter were not instantly seen, for the dust raised by the trampling of so many steeds darkened the air, and it was a minute ere the anxious spectators could see the fate of the encounter. When the fight became visible, half the knights on each side were dismounted, some by the dexterity of their adversary's lance, some by the superior weight and strength of opponents, which had borne down both horse and man. Some lay stretched on the earth, as if never more to arise. Some had already gained their feet, and were closing hand to hand with those of their antagonists, who were in the same predicament. And several on both sides, who had received wounds by which they were disabled, were stopping their blood by their scarves, and endeavouring to extricate themselves from the tumult. The mounted knights, whose lances had been almost all broken by the fury of the encounter, were now closely engaged with their swords, shouting their war-cries and exchanging buffets as if honor and life depended on the issue of the combat. The tumult was presently increased by the advance of the second rank on either side, which, acting as a reserve, now rushed on to aid their companions. The followers of Brian de bois Gilbert shouted, Ha! Bossin. Bosin, For the temple! For the temple!' The opposite party shouted in answer, "'Desdicado! Desdicado!' Which watchword they took from the motto upon their leader's shield. The champions thus encountering each other with the utmost fury, and with alternate success, the tide of battle seemed to flow now toward the southern, now toward the northern, extremity of the lists as the one or the other party prevailed. Meantime the clang of the blows and the shouts of the combatants mixed fearfully with the sound of the trumpets and drowned the groans of those who fell and lay rolling, defenseless beneath the feet of the horses. The splendid armor of the combatants was now defaced with dust and blood and gave way at every stroke of the sword and battle-axe. The gay plumage shorn from the crests drifted upon the breeze like snowflakes. All that was beautiful and graceful in the martial array had disappeared, and what was now visible was only calculated to awake terror or compassion. Yet such is the force of habit that not only the vulgar spectators, who are naturally attracted by sights of horror, but even the ladies of distinction who crowded the galleries saw the conflict with a thrilling interest. Certainly, but without a wish to withdraw their eyes from a sight so terrible. Here and there, indeed, a fair cheek might turn pale, or a faint scream might be heard, as a lover, a brother, or a husband was struck from his horse. But in general, the ladies around encouraged the combatants, not only by clapping their hands and waving their veils and kerchiefs, but even by exclaiming, "'Brave Lance! Good sword!' when any successful thrust or blow took place under their observation. Such being the interest taken by the fair sex in this bloody game, that of the men is the more easily understood. It showed itself in loud acclamations upon every change of fortune, while all eyes were so riveted on the lists that the spectators seemed as if they themselves had dealt and received the blows which were there so freely bestowed. And between every pause was heard the voice of the heralds, exclaiming, "'Fight on, brave knights! Man dies, but glory lives! Fight on! Death is better than defeat! Fight on, brave knights, for bright eyes behold your deeds!' Amid the varied fortunes of the combat, the eyes of all endeavored to discover the leaders of each band, who, mingling in the thick of the fight, encouraged their companions both by voice and example. Both displayed great feats of gallantry, nor did either bois Gilbert or the disinherited knight find in the ranks opposed to them a champion who could be termed their unquestioned match. They repeatedly endeavored to single out each other, spurred by mutual animosity, and aware that the fall of the leader might be considered as decisive of victory. Such, however, was the crowd and confusion that during the earlier part of the conflict, their efforts to meet were unavailing, and they were repeatedly separated by the eagerness of their followers, each of whom was anxious to win honor by measuring his strength against the leader of the opposite party. But when the field became thin by the numbers on either side, who had yielded themselves vanquished, had been compelled to the extremity of the lists, or been otherwise rendered incapable of continuing the strife, The Templar and the disinherited knight at length encountered hand to hand with all the fury that mortal animosity, joined to rivalry of honor, could inspire. Such was the address of each in parrying and striking that the spectators broke forth into a unanimous and involuntary shout, expressive of their delight and admiration. But at this moment the party of the disinherited knight had the worst the gigantic arm of fronteboeuf on the one flank, and the ponderous strength of Athelstane on the other, bearing down and dispersing those immediately exposed to them. Finding themselves freed from their immediate antagonists, it seems to have occurred to both these knights at the same instant that they would render the most decisive advantage to their party by aiding the Templar in his contest with his rival. Turning their horses, therefore, at the same moment, The Norman spurred against the Disinherited Knight, on the one side, and the Saxon on the other. It was utterly impossible that the object of this unequal and unexpected assault could have sustained it, had he not been warned by a general cry from the spectators, who could not but take interest in one exposed to such disadvantage. "'Beware! Beware! Sir Disinherited!' was shouted so universally that the Knight became aware of his danger, and striking a full blow at the Templar, he reined back his steed in the same moment, so as to escape the charge of Athelstane and Frondeboeuf. These knights, therefore, their aim being thus eluded, rushed from opposite sides betwixt the object of their attack and the Templar, almost running their horses against each other ere they could stop their career. Recovering their horses, however, and wheeling them around, the whole three pursued their united purpose of bearing to the earth the disinherited knight. Nothing could have saved him except the remarkable strength and activity of the noble horse which he had won on the preceding day. This stood him in the more stead, as the horse of bois was wounded, and those of Rontboeuf and Athelsen were both tired, with the weight of their gigantic masters clad in complete armor and with the preceding exertions of the day. The masterly horsemanship of the disinherited knight, and the activity of the noble animal which he mounted, enabled him for a few minutes to keep at sword's point his three antagonists, turning and wheeling with the agility of a hawk upon the wing, keeping his enemies as far separate as he could, and rushing now against the one, now against the other, "'dealing sweeping blows with his sword, "'without waiting to receive those which were aimed at him in return. "'But although the lists rang with the applauses of his dexterity, "'it was evident that he must at last be overpowered. "'And the nobles around Prince John implored him with one voice "'to throw down his warder, and to save so brave a knight "'from the disgrace of being overcome by odds. "'Not I by the light of heaven!' answered prince john this same springle who conceals his name and despises our proffered hospitality hath already gained one prize and may now afford to let others have their turn as he spoke thus an unexpected incident changed the fortune of the day there was among the ranks of the disinherited knight a champion in black armor mounted on a black horse large of size tall, and to all appearance powerful and strong, like the rider by whom he was mounted. This knight, who bore on his shield no device of any kind, had hitherto evinced very little interest in the event of the fight, beating off with seeming ease those combatants who attacked him, but neither pursuing his advantages nor himself assailing any one. In short, he had hitherto acted the part rather of a spectator than of a party in the tournament." A circumstance which procured him among the spectators the name of Le Noir Fainant, or the Black Sluggard. At once this knight seemed to throw aside his apathy, when he discovered the leader of his party so hard-bested, for, setting spurs to his horse, which was quite fresh, he came to his assistance like a thunderbolt, exclaiming in a voice like a trumpet-call, D'esticado! To the rescue! It was high time. For while the disinherited knight was pressing upon the Templar, Frontbeuf had got nigh to him with his uplifted sword. But ere the blow could descend, the sable knight dealt a stroke on his head, which, glancing from the polished helmet, lighted with violence scarcely abated on the chamfron of the steed, and Fronteboeuf rolled on the ground, both horse and man equally stunned by the fury of the blow. Le noir then turned his horse upon Athelstane of Konigsberg. And his own sword, having been broken in his encounter with Fronteboeuf, he wrenched from the hand of the bulky Saxon the battle-axe which he welded, and, like one familiar with the use of the weapon, bestowed him such a blow upon the crest that Athelstane also lay senseless on the field. Having achieved this double feat, for which he was the more highly applauded that it was totally unexpected from him, the knight seemed to resume the sluggishness of his character, returning calmly to the northern extremity of the lists, leaving his leader to cope as best he could with the Brian de Bois-Guilbert. This was no longer matter of so much difficulty as formerly. The Templar's horse had bled much, and gave way under the shock of the disinherited knight's charge. Brian de Bois-Gilbert rolled on the field, encumbered with the stirrup from which he was unable to draw his foot. His antagonist sprung from horseback, waved his fatal sword over the head of his adversary, and commanded him to yield himself. When Prince John, more moved by the Templar's dangerous situation than he had been by that of his rival, saved him the mortification of confessing himself vanquished, by casting down his warder and putting an end to the conflict. It was, indeed, only the relics and embers of the fight which continued to burn. For of the few knights who still continued in the lists, the greater part had, by tacit consent, forborne the conflict for some time, leaving it to be determined by the strife of the leaders. The squires, who had found it a matter of danger and difficulty to attend their masters during the engagement, now thronged into the lists to pay their dutiful attendance to the wounded, who were removed with the utmost care and attention to the neighboring pavilions, or the quarters prepared for them in the adjoining village. Thus ended the memorable field of Ashby de Zouche, one of the most gallantly contested tournaments of that age, for although only four knights, including one who was smothered by the heat of his armor, had died upon the field yet upwards of thirty were desperately wounded, four or five of whom never recovered. Several more were disabled for life, and those who escaped best carried the marks of the conflict to the grave with them. Hence it is always mentioned in the old records as the Gentle and Joyous Passage of Arms of Ashby. It being now the duty of Prince John to name the knight who had done best, he determined that the honor of the day remained with the knight whom the popular voice had termed Le Noir Fainant. It was pointed out to the prince, in impeachment of this decree, that the victory had been in fact won by the disinherited knight— who, in the course of the day, had overcome six champions with his own hand, and who had finally unhorsed and struck down the leader of the opposite party. But Prince John adhered to his own opinion, on the ground that the disinherited knight and his party had lost the day, but for the powerful assistance of the knight of the black armour, to whom, therefore, he persisted in awarding the prize. To the surprise of all present, however, the knight thus preferred was nowhere to be found. He had left the lists immediately when the conflict ceased, and had been observed by some spectators to move down one of the forest glades with the same slow pace and listless and indifferent manner which had procured him the epithet of the black sluggard. After he had been summoned twice by the sound of trumpet and proclamation of the heralds, it became necessary to name another to receive the honours which had been assigned to him. Prince John had now no further excuse for resisting the claim of the disinherited knight, whom therefore he named the champion of the day. Through a field slippery with blood, and encumbered with broken armour and the bodies of slain and wounded horses, the marshals of the lists again CONDUCTED THE VICTOR TO THE FOOT OF PRINCE JOHN'S THRONE. DISINHERITED KNIGHT, SAID PRINCE JOHN, SINCE BY THAT TITLE ONLY YOU WILL CONSENT TO BE KNOWN TO US, WE A SECOND TIME AWARD TO YOU THE HONORS OF THIS TOURNAMENT, AND ANNOUNCE TO YOU YOUR RIGHT TO CLAIM AND RECEIVE FROM THE HANDS OF THE QUEEN OF LOVE AND BEAUTY THE CHAPLET OF HONOR WHICH YOUR VALOR HAS JUSTLY DESERVED. THE KNIGHT BOWED LOW AND GRACEFULLY but returned no answer. While the trumpets sounded, while the heralds strained their voices in proclaiming honor to the brave and glory to the victor, while ladies waved their silken kerchiefs and embroidered veils, and while all ranks joined in a clamorous shout of exultation, the marshals conducted the disinherited knight across the lists to the foot of that throne of honor which was occupied by the lady Rowena. On the lower step of this throne the champion was made to kneel down. Indeed, his whole action, since the fight had ended, seemed rather to have been upon the impulse of those around him than from his own free will, and it was observed that he tottered as they guided him the second time across the lists. Rowena, descending from her station with a graceful and dignified step, was about to place the chaplet which she held in her hand upon the helmet of the champion, when the marshals exclaimed with one voice, "'It must not be thus. His head must be bare!' The knight muttered faintly a few words, which were lost in the hollow of his helmet. But their purport seemed to be a desire that his cask might not be removed. Whether from love of form or from curiosity, the marshals paid no attention to his expressions of reluctance, but unhelmed him by cutting the laces of his cask, and undoing the fastening of his gorget when the helmet was removed the well-formed yet sun-burnt features of a young man of 25 were seen amidst a profusion of short fair hair his countenance was as pale as death and marked in one or two places with streaks of blood rowena had no sooner beheld him than she uttered a faint shriek but at once summoning up the energy of her disposition and compelling herself, as it were, to proceed while her frame yet trembled with the violence of sudden emotion, she placed upon the drooping head of the victor the splendid chaplet, which was the destined reward of the day, and pronounced in a clear and distinct tone these words, I bestow on thee this chaplet, sir knight, as the meed and valour assigned to this day's victor. Here she paused a moment, and then firmly added, And upon brows more worthy could a wreath of chivalry never be placed. The knight stooped his head and kissed the hand of the lovely sovereign by whom his valor had been rewarded, and then, sinking yet farther forward, lay prostrate at her feet. There was a general consternation. Cedric, who had been struck mute by the sudden appearance of his banished son, now rushed forward as if to separate him from Rowena. But this had already been accomplished by the marshals of the field, who, guessing the cause of Ivanhoe's swoon, had hastened to undo his armor, and found that the head of a lance had penetrated his breastplate, and inflicted a wound in his side. End of chapter 12